Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. It's been somewhat of a problem with this gospel reading in Lutheran churches for really only the last 60 years. It wasn't really a problem before that. But so-called radical Lutheranism snuck in, and one of the things it did was kind of made it uncomfortable for Lutherans ever to talk about the Christian life in any meaningful way. So what happened with this passage was, they looked at this passage and said, Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, is all about Jesus being the Good Samaritan, period, end of discussion. Has nothing to do with the Christian life whatsoever beyond that. The problem with that is, one, it's not true from the text. That's the biggest problem. Second major problem is it's not the way the Lutherans have talked about this passage ever in their entire history until the last 60 years or so. What's happened a lot in Lutheran circles over that time period is a lot of overreactions. So if the Roman Catholics say something or the Baptists say something, then whether it's biblical or not, sometimes Lutherans just want to be the opposite of that. Whatever the opposite thing is, we want to be that. It's not a good way, one, to read the Bible. It's not a good way to develop your theology or to even be and live as a Christian. And so, yes, we'll definitely see that Jesus is indeed at the center of this passage, not just in his telling of the story, but that indeed he is the Good Samaritan. But then the fact that he is the Good Samaritan for us does then have a lot to say about how we go and do likewise, as Jesus tells us to do. Perhaps a helpful verse on this passage that maybe sums up a lot of it, and Jesus' point in telling the story to the lawyer to begin with, is from 1 Samuel 15. If you recall in 1 Samuel 15, Saul was given very strict instructions about what to do when he went into this land to conquer it. This was a condemned city. He was not to leave anything alive. And he was to wait for Samuel for doing anything else, and he disregards all of these orders. Samuel finally shows up, and Saul says, I've done everything the Lord has commanded. And in one of the best lines in the Bible, I think, in the Old Testament, Samuel says, then what is the bleeding of this sheep in my ears? In other words, why aren't these animals dead? Why have you not obeyed? And then, of course, Saul comes up with all kinds of excuses. He blames the people. Well... You know, we we're going to do this, but the people, they really wanted to offer these things to God as a sacrifice. And then Samuel rebukes him, and from the Lord tells him that his kingship will be taken away from him. It will not even stay in his household. And Samuel says these wonderful words. He says, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Perhaps for our purposes this morning to rephrase that, perhaps we could say that mercy, that compassion, those things are the better sacrifice. Our reading begins with the lawyer's two misguided questions. Now notice it says, we're told quite clearly that he asked the first question to test Jesus, right? To see how he would answer. He's trying to put the Lord to the test. So he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, generally, as Lutherans, we take the phrasing of this to be all wrong anyway. What do I have to do? What do I got to do to earn this? Tell me, Jesus. 
Tell me, and I'll do it. What do you think? So his question starts off with a misunderstanding of salvation. He's very concerned in what he must do. He's a lawyer, right? He wants to make sure that he's checked off all the boxes, that he hasn't missed anything, that he's done his due diligence, that he has fulfilled the law. He wants to make sure he's done it all right. Not realizing that even the Old Testament itself, which he should know as a lawyer of God's holy law, that he's incapable of keeping it perfectly in thought, word, and deed himself. So Jesus says, and this happens a lot with Jesus, by the way, when he's tested, he doesn't often give a straight answer. He often answers a question with a question or multiple questions. And so Jesus says, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So rather than answering, he says, well, what do you think? What do you think you've got to do? The lawyer answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, this is the answer Jesus himself has given to a summary of the law. Jesus himself has said, if you want a summary of the law, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus hears this, he says, You've answered rightly. You're correct. But then notice what Jesus adds. Do this, and you'll live. Go ahead and do it. You're correct. That's what's required of you. Now, I want you to go out and do that. Now, he's not telling the man, you've got to go out and earn your salvation. He is revealing to the man that he lacks the very things he claims the law requires of him. Jesus is in essence saying, okay, love God perfectly with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor perfectly as yourself, and you're good. This makes the lawyer pretty uncomfortable. It does seem to smite his conscience a little bit. It seems to bother him. Because then it says, wanting to justify himself, he says, okay, well, who is my neighbor? Now, I find this rather funny in various ways. He doesn't say, well, how do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? He kind of assumes he does that, which is rather interesting and telling. But then he wants to know, in a very legalistic way, okay, well, tell me who was my neighbor so I can make sure I've loved them and checked that off my list. But remember what we're told in 1 John. If you can't love your neighbor whom you have seen... How can you love God whom you have not seen? In other words, his question reveals the fact that he hasn't really loved God either. Because the fact that he thinks about his neighbor in very legalistic terms, okay, who is my neighbor? This is a very limiting way to think about love. In fact, that's one of the big problems here. His view of legalism shuts out mercy. It shuts out compassion. You see, anytime you want to set limits on mercy and love, Anytime you want to put these kind of parameters around it, when you want to reduce it to a mathematical formula, okay, well, on this day, this person happens to be my neighbor, therefore, I love them, check that off my list. I'm good. I've loved my neighbor. He has no thought of mercy, of love, of compassion. The question is not for us as Christians. At least it ought not be. 
who is my neighbor in a kind of limiting, legalistic way. But the question for the Christian is, who can I be a neighbor to? Who has God put before me today that I can love and have mercy and compassion on? That is the question for the Christian. I find it fascinating, and I've mentioned this before, but Jesus doesn't tell him, go and love everybody. Because that's an impossibility. You cannot love everyone on this planet right now. There's too many of them. Even if you tried to love everyone in this town, you're not going to do it. It's an impossibility. Charles Dickens mocks the kind of love and mercy that ignores the neighbor right next door to us and focuses on neighbors far away. He calls it telescopic philanthropy. And in the book, Bleak House, he has this character, Miss is Jellybee, who ignores her family, who ignores the poor on her street while she tries to save a tribe in Africa. And it's played up throughout the book for laughs, especially at the end of the book. But what Dickens is mocking is that she's pretending to love someone she hasn't even met, someone who's just an abstraction for her. And yet she ignores the people God has placed in her path all around her in her very home, on the street right in front of her house. She ignores all of them, but soothes her conscience by sending money and working hard for people very far away. Now I'm not saying, and I don't think Jesus is either, that we have to ignore the needs of those far away. But rather, it's quite hypocritical of us to love those whom we have not seen, who we are not around, while neglecting those who are in our homes and right outside our doors. That's the point. It's one thing to love those around us and then that love extends beyond those borders to perhaps those far away. But the fact is, it's easier for us in 2022 to write a check to some group and send it off and not have to think about it or worry about it than to love the flesh and blood people that God throws in your path day in and day out. So we ask not, who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to, which is at the heart of what Jesus says. Jesus says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this parable is doing two things. It's working really on two kind of different levels here. First and foremost, Jesus wants to reveal to us and show to us how salvation works. And so... What has happened throughout church history is that most Christians have understood this part, being stripped and left half dead, or for dead, is a picture of the work of our sin. We are as among those who have fallen among thieves. And it's like we've been stripped of all of our clothing, left beaten and naked on the side of the road, utterly helpless and hopeless. That is a description of us. In our sin. So what happens? Now by chance a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite when he arrived at the place. Came and looked and passed by on the other side. Two religious leaders. That would have worked at the temple. 
come by and they don't want to defile themselves. They don't want to perhaps become unclean by touching a dead body. And so they ignore it and walk around. This too has been understand throughout church history that this is the law. The law doesn't come and help us. The law can point out and say, look, you're dead. You're in a lot of trouble here. But it cannot do anything to save you. But a certain Samaritan, remember the Jews despised the Samaritans. They viewed them as half-breeds who were not worthy of the time of day. And the hero of Jesus' story is a Samaritan, an outcast. As he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He showed him mercy. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. Now first and foremost here, this is meant to be a beautiful picture, picture of what your Lord Jesus Christ does for you. He comes to you, he finds you dead in your trespasses and sins, and he doesn't walk on by. He comes to rescue you. He offers himself as a perfect sacrifice in your place for your sins. And then he makes sure that those things come to you. Don't miss that he used oil and wine. I know you'll see lots of little footnotes and things in study Bibles that will say, oil and wine were used for medicinal purposes. But that's not the point. In fact, I mean, let's be honest. If you just pour oil and wine on some wounds and bandage them up, it's probably not going to do a whole lot of good. But oil and wine were two things that were key to temple worship. That both the priests and Levites would have been quite familiar with and had access to and used. And that's come down to us throughout the years. We see these as a picture of the glorious sacraments that Christ baptizes us. That he feeds us with his body and blood, with the bread and wine. That he takes us and brings us to the inn, the church. And he gives to the church the wonderful gifts and says, take care of him and I'll make sure everything's set right when I return. It's interesting that the word Samaritan means watcher, defender, guardian. And the Samaritan has this great mercy and compassion upon the man. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I mentioned that mercy is the better sacrifice. In our Lord's case, mercy is not only the better sacrifice, it's also his sacrifice. Because in mercy, he lays down his life for us. In mercy, he finds us and takes care of us, rescues us, redeems us, and puts us in the church so we can keep being taken care of until he returns for us. It is indeed a glorious and wonderful picture, a beautiful picture, of all that Christ has done and is doing for you. And at the end, Jesus has another question. So which of the three men was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Now, it's possible the lawyer can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He won't even say the words, because it kind of disgusts him that he's the hero of the story. But he at least answers right, he who, showed he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. 
So first and foremost, I think our Lord's showing him and us this parable to say, you can't save yourself. You don't love God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You too need to be rescued. You need to have mercy shown to you. But Jesus ends saying, go and do likewise. You see, the Levites, the lawyer, the priest, they of all people should have known from God's holy words that to have mercy, to show mercy, is a better sacrifice. For the Levite and priest to become unclean if he was dead and they had touched him would have been better than going to go do their jobs at the temple and offer sacrifice after ignoring someone, after withholding mercy. That would have been the better sacrifice. And the go and do likewise is not some kind of legalistic thing now that Jesus is saying you must just be saved. But those who have received mercy, those who have been shown compassion, they will indeed be merciful. They will be compassionate. Look at several places from throughout the Bible that show us this in very clear terms. The first is from our Second Chronicles 28 reading. It's rather fascinating. Because the lawyer would have been, most likely it sounds like, from the tribe of Judah, which were the ones who were taken slaves in our Chronicles reading. Perhaps a descendant of these very people who had been shown mercy. Notice the leaders say, our guilt is so great, we need to fix this, we need to have mercy. So what do they do? They clothed all who were naked among them. They dressed them and gave them sandals, gave them food and drink. They anointed them. They let those who were too weak to walk, they put them on donkeys. Almost the very things that take place in the story that Jesus tells. And then they take them down to the oasis city, the city of Palms, the city of Jericho. And make no mistake, our Lord later will use almost the very same things in Matthew 25. The righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So both in Second Chronicles 28, also in Matthew 25, we are shown a beautiful picture of what mercy looks like of what it looks like to take care of the least of these. Those who need help from the outside because they cannot help themselves. In Job 29, we have one of my favorite summaries of this. It's very interesting because Job's accused by his friends of being unrighteous, of being evil. And that's why he's suffering, they say. Had you not been so wicked, then you would not be suffering the way you are. And Job, like James, doesn't say, well, I have faith, therefore I'm righteous, and you just have to take my word for it. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. So in Job 29, he says, I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor. 
and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from its teeth. Job says, look, my faith was shown in the fact that I took care of the poor, the fatherless, the widow. I sought true justice for those who were being harmed by the wicked. My faith was shown in what I did. Job says, I'm one who's received mercy and I've been merciful. I've had compassion on these people. From the prophets, from Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. So James will say in James chapter 1, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So the interesting about the James passage is, and we'll be looking at this in the coming weeks in Bible study, is that some of the people James is writing to thought, look, we're being persecuted and oppressed. What we need to do is get a bunch of money and take matters into our own hands and defend ourselves with violence. And James says, what you need to do is take care of orphans and widows. That's what you need to do. Christ wants us to have eyes of mercy, eyes of compassion, that are looking for who we can be a neighbor to. Luther called this our treasure hunt. And I think Luther was borrowing there, not just from the Bible, but from St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence, who would be grilled over a gridiron. St. Lawrence, who would say, I'm done on this side, flip me over. He was a brave and faithful man, and he was he sold off the goods of the church in Rome so he could give them to the poor. And the emperor came and said, uh, you need to get all those goods back. I want those treasures. He said, come back the next day. And so he brings out all the poor and hurting and says, these are the treasures of the church. I think Luther has that in mind when he says, this is our treasure hunts. We are to be Samaritans. We're to be defenders, watchers, guardians of those who cannot help themselves. We are to be, we saw last week, the ears and mouth of Jesus. We are also to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I think one of the reasons we struggle with this is there is so much around us and in this world that's shocking. The numbers are overwhelming. There are hundreds of millions of people today on the verge of starvation. There are a million people alone in Somalia who have left a famine-ridden land so that they can try to find help, and they're wandering about the desert and just dropping dead. Sex trafficking is at all-time highs. It seems like oftentimes, even in our own country, that justice does not reign, that wickedness does. And I think what happens is we hear these large numbers, we look around and become paralyzed. We think, what can I do to help in the face of so much evil? Also, I think, because of the so-called social justice movement that has corrupted God's word and brought in all kinds of evil things, that we have forgotten that we are to fight for biblical justice for the poor, for the suffering, for those who are hurting. That we're to be those of mercy and compassion upon these people. And to seek to bring true biblical justice where we live. And the thing is, even though the numbers are shocking and can seem overwhelming, 
We are people of hope and we live in hope. We have hope in the Son of God who loved us and saved us and had mercy on us. So when we bring mercy to others, part of what we are doing is you are bringing them hope. Hope they did not have. And so the church as a whole and as individuals, perhaps the question is, because this gets brought up a lot, right? How do we change the world? What does that mean even? Right? We'll come and go through another school year. There'll be a lot of graduation speeches that talk about graduates going out and changing the world. Well, the Bible says you're changing the world right now in this place as you sing psalms and hymns, as you hear the word of God read and preached. And that those things indeed are changing the world for the better in a way that nothing that will ever be done in Washington, D.C. could ever hope to do. And as we've already seen from throughout the Bible, we change the world by having mercy and compassion on those who are in desperate need of it. And we're not talking here, it's easy to, you know, hear the story about man half dead and think about all these crazy things we have to do, these big things. But it's in the little things, too, that we're called to show mercy and compassion. Mother Teresa, who, as you know, had a life of mercy and compassion to those who were cast out and suffering, she said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Right? We don't have to be looking for great and amazing things that people will look at us and be like, wow, I can't believe they rescued that person or did this thing. It's in the small acts. I happen to find that quote in this next one in an article written after Queen Elizabeth's death. And today is a day of mourning in England for her, so a quote by her seems appropriate. But even with the inspiration of others, it's understandable that we sometimes think the world's problems are so big that we can do little to help. On our own, we cannot end wars or wipe out injustice. But the cumulative impact of thousands of small acts of goodness can be bigger than we imagine. She is right. We are called to have mercy and compassion even in the little things. And those little things God uses in marvelous and spectacular ways. Most of the mercy and compassion you're going to show is going to happen in little small things. It's going to happen in your home, among your family. It's going to happen at work among your coworkers. It's going to happen when God brings someone into your path in any given day that needs mercy. And it may be something that seems small and insignificant to you, perhaps means a great deal to them. And the fact is, too, and this should be okay with us, that most of these acts of mercy and compassion will be unknown by the vast majority of the people in the world. But they'll be known to God. They'll be known to your Savior who sees them. To live lives of mercy and compassion is to live and love as Jesus. We're called to be slaves of God and slaves of the neighbor. We're to love them and show mercy for the glory of God and for love and compassion towards them. And yeah, you're going to, as you strive to this, you're going to fail. You're going to miss opportunities that God put right in your face, and you're going to turn around a little bit later and be like, how did I miss that? How did I not take that opportunity to show mercy when God gave that to me? Or, rather than showing mercy, perhaps you're going to heap 
more pain and suffering on them, whether intentionally or inadvertently. You're going to screw it up. And yet we strive to have lives of mercy and compassion. We strive, we live, we love, we show mercy. And we only do it because we live in the mercy of the Good Samaritan. We're merciful because he was merciful to us. We are Samaritans, watchers, guardians, defenders, because he did that for us. And so we don't go out from this place thinking that, man, what pastor said is hard. It's hard to love people. How can I possibly do this? I'm going to screw it up. Yes, you probably are. And yet we strive to do it because we've been shown mercy. And we know that as we screw up, even as we screw up to try to help people and we feel like we botch it and mishandle it, that God is merciful to us in Christ Jesus even in that. Even in that, God is going to be merciful to you. He is going to keep showing you mercy. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. And so we live as those who day in and day day out require. We need mercy. We need mercy for the forgiveness of sins. We need mercy to live. And we need that mercy that we might love and show mercy as Christ has for us. Amen. The peace of God passes on our sin and guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.